Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and the winning mindsets that you need to succeed so you have the cheat code to success with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. We call that your X Factor, and it's what makes you extraordinary. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. That's right, we distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so that you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, a recovering introvert, cancer biologist, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, and rock and roller. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women elite communication, networking, and connection skills. That's right. Everything that we share with you on this podcast is directly from our world-famous X-Factor Accelerator Program. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right, let's kick off today's show. Today we have Arthur Brooks with us. Arthur is the best-selling author of 11 books on topics ranging from economic opportunity to human happiness. He's also the host of the podcast, The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks. His latest book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life just came out. And we're excited today to talk about just that, your career trajectory and how to find happiness and purpose in the second half. Now, you might be surprised, as I was, to learn just how early that second half begins in your career. And we're also going to break down what success addiction is and how we can overcome it. Welcome to the show, Arthur. So happy to have you here. Thank you. What a how great to be here. I mean, thank you for, by the way, thank you for the show. Your show has been helpful to me. And that's not true for a lot of shows, but it's always practical, always useful, always upbeat, always positive, and you make me more productive and happier every time I listen to The Art of Charm. Well, thank you for that compliment. It means the world to me and Johnny, and it's certainly why we started the show in the first place. We've had a ton of guests on over the years talking about happiness, so we love asking those who study happiness, and certainly the science behind living your best life, what is the ultimate secret to happiness? Yeah. You know, there are, there are a million ways to answer that question, but there's only one really great way to answer that lesson. And I'm going to, I'm going to answer the lesson based on, not on theology, not on philosophy, but on data. Cause I'm a, I'm a data scientist. I'm a, I'm a social scientist. There's an 80 year longitudinal study that was run through Harvard university where I teach that looked at, started with men who were in their, they were 19 years old. They were sophomores at Harvard college in the late thirties and early forties, including JFK was in the sample, Ben Bradley. Anyway. They didn't make it all the way to the end. And then they mixed it with some people who weren't, you know, all Harvard men, to, so it would be more demographically similar, followed them all the way through into their 80s, some of them into their 90s. And they came up with seven practices that predicted whether or not they were going to be happy and well, healthy, or in some other quadrant. And so what you want to be is happy and well. And of those seven, there was one that predicted more than anything else whether or not you'd wind up happy in your 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that was love. And the guy who ran the study, George Valiant, who was a psychiatrist and a Harvard Medical School professor for you know really, really long time, he was asked at the end of his career, how do you sum up the Harvard study of adult development? He said, happiness is love, full stop. My friends, that is the secret, love. And what I love about that study in looking across as long as it did, right, the entire lifetime the idea that love and relationships and connectedness plays such a big role 
in our personal happiness because many of us think we have to take control. We are the root of it. It's our actions, but really it involves others. It involves being connected to others to reach that point of happiness. For sure. And, you know, I, in, in my own studies, you know, if you look at the, the people who are, who tend to be happiest, you find that they have a kind of a portfolio of habits. And so that, and the habits are not making a lot of money, having a really good education, you know, none of that stuff. Uh, so the money, power, pleasure, fame, that's, that's not in the matrix. The four things that correlate that, the, the happiness practices, the disciplines that happy people have every, that they do every day is that they, they dedicate time to their faith or, or philosophical practice or meditation practice, something spiritual, something more transcendental than their own particular lives, their family life their friendships, and making sure that their work serves other people. And all those things have to do with love. The common denominator across faith, family, friends, and work that serves is love. And I bet, you know, it gets you guys under sodium pentothal. Why are you doing the art of charm? It's because you have love for other people. You want to do something that lifts people up. You want to do something that brings people together. And, you know, it's not like I'm guessing. I listen to the show, and I can hear it in your voices that this is a labor of love for you guys. Thank you. One of the points there that I would love to dive into is the faith aspect. I think for quite some time, we became more of a seemingly to me, and I don't know the, the numbers on this, but a seemingly more of a secular nation as time has went on due to technology and science and research and everything. However, I keep coming back to how religion, faith allows people to feel there's a, there's a connectedness that is going on there as well. And then you mentioned the, the transcendental aspect of it as well. Are you able to distill the mech, the, the few mechanisms that are important within faith and how we may go for somebody who's a bit more secular or science driven, how they might be able to incorporate those, those mechanisms in their lives? Yeah, so there's a lot of anthropological research that shows that you might say there's a God-shaped hole in people's hearts. And it doesn't that doesn't mean that God exists, by the way. It just means that there's something about our nature where we want the transcendental, where we we seek the divine naturally. And, and a lot of people actually believe that that is normal. And doesn't, that doesn't, again, this is not to say that, that God necessarily exists, although that's actually one of the classic theological arguments for the presence of God is that, that your hunger for something presumes its existence. You know, I'm hungry for food. That sort of assumes food exists, right? You know, you want sex. That suggests that sex exists, right? As, as opposed to you have this meaningless craving for something amorphous. And if you have a craving for the divine, that suggests that there's something that is more transcendental than you that actually exists and is cognizant and has some sort of consciousness in some way, shape, or form. And there are a lot of manifestations of that. This is the reason many people believe that most people throughout most of history have had some religious inclination. Now, Again, there are a lot of people that go in a lot of different directions on this. So if we have a need for something like this, if we have an inclination for something like this, there's a lot of different ways to, to fill that need. And, and when we don't as a society, we're going in, in the opposite direction where more and more and more people say, I got nothing. I got nothing. That would predict that we're going to see declines in happiness. And in point of fact, we do. Now, David Foster Wallace, you know, the great, the genius writer that we all know, he taught, he one time he said that, that people will worship something no matter what, right? And so if you take away God, they're going to worship something else. And it's going to be tricky. <laughs> so and the, the secret in this new book that I have, it's, I try to sum it up at the end. You know, when I, when I write a book, you know, I write 65 or 75,000 words or something. And it's like, no way everybody's going to remember this. I won't even remember this as the author. So in the end, what do you got to remember? And, and it's basically the, the formula, if you really, really want to be happy, is, you know, the world tells you to use people and love things and worship yourself, right? The right formula is to use things, love people, and worship the divine. I'm not going to tell you what the divine is. You got to figure that one out yourself. But that's the right formula if you want to be happy. Well, something that strikes me as peculiar with the faith aspect is and you, and you mentioned this as well that for all of us we have a different idea of what that is and i think this is what makes it so difficult over over all this time that in the the religious argument of what exactly is it that we're arguing there's even a, a famous sam harris and jordan peterson 
uh, debate over th- that idea. And then Jordan was like, well, can we at least define it first so we can have a discussion about what it is? And they couldn't even get off the ground on, on defining it to have the debate. And one of the aspects into what we do is there has been many people who have wrote to this show saying that, that the art of charm or that self-development has been their faith, their, their religious experience of allowing themselves to work towards something to the best, to be the best of their ability. And that has become it. We even see it in certain things such as veganism or, or the cult like behavior of CrossFit. People were like, Oh, they're religious freaks over there at CrossFit. We we'd see these things all the time. So are you able to speak to anything there? And maybe that is because we have this hole, we're going to fill it with something. That's exactly David Foster Wallace's point. Now, here's basically how to think about it as far as I'm concerned. Here's, here's how I think that each of us can get our minds around it. There's a search. The great adventure of life is that search is actually trying to figure that out. Now, you wish in so, at sometimes in your life that you know somebody would give you the magic formula and say, okay, here is the way to get to heaven. Here is the ultimate truth. And when you're a kid, you think that grownups actually know it. And then when you're a grownup, you find out that they don't. And, but if you see somebody who's wise enough and who's enlightened enough and who's you know, if you can meet the Dalai Lama, then he must know, right? If you, you know, it's the, the Pope, he must know. And these people who have these, you know, special knowledge, the reason that, that that you can get not the Dalai Lama and the Pope, but real sort of cult messianic figures is because people will assume that there is somebody who's finally found the truth behind this. The fun, the adventure is being in search of that truth because it is the search itself that is so unbelievably enlightening. Now, what is it that actually brings happiness about this? And, and I've studied all kinds of different religions and philosophical traditions and secular humanism and ethics, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no particular religion that brings you more happiness than another. If there were, I'd tell you. And, and if it were mine, that would be awesome, right? But which is right is a different question than which actually brings happiness. And what you find is that they all can deliver. And the reason is because they distract you from the most boring thing in the world, which is your day-to-day life. You know, you are obsessed with an incredibly boring thing. My stuff, my car, my money, my job, my friends. It's, it's, it's like you're thinking during your work day about what you're going to watch on TV tonight. It is so boring. And yet, if we don't have something that's more transcendental, can zoom us out to the majesty of the nature of our existence, whether it be stoic philosophy or, or you know, the ecstasy that actually comes from, I don't know, CrossFit to actually going to Catholic Mass, we need that to distract us in a very, very big way. And so that's one of the things that I say. It's like, read in the wisdom tradition, start a faith or meditation practice. And I don't care if it's traditionally religious or not, but do it today and start now and you will see, you will reap the rewards. You'll be happier. I'm glad we started here because if we have this tendency or this hole that needs to be filled, and then you have brought up this idea of the the four false idols, right? Money, power, pleasure, and fame. If those are the the, the idols and, and we end up filling that hole, chasing one of those, we're going to find ourselves into a, in a lot of trouble. Absolutely. And we're going to get into the, who's that actually behind you? Is that, is that Mick behind you? Uh, no, it's Iggy. Okay. I can't quite tell it's blurry because anyway, the, but Mick Jagger, you know, I was saying I can't get no satisfaction. And then I try and I try and I try. And the whole point is that you're looking for it with consumerism and sex and, and drugs and et cetera. And in other words, you can't get no satisfaction. And so you try to get more money, power, pleasure, fame, more money, power, pleasure, fame. And that's, and you're on this homeostatic treadmill, this hedonic treadmill and running and running and running. And the truth is you do get satisfaction. You just can't keep it. That's the problem. You momentarily get it, but you actually can't keep no satisfaction. I talk about that a lot in this new book about the, the neuroscience of dissatisfaction. And the only way that you can get it is by looking for the transcendental. Why? Because the transcendental will allow you to actually chip away at the attachments, the cravings, the worldly desires in your life and substitute them with something that's actually more fulfilling, something that has a chance of giving you a little bit more lasting satisfaction. So woe be unto us if we listen to the world. And you know, one of the great mistakes that people make is they think, you know, back in the 60s, they used to say, if it feels good, do it, right? And now millennials, a lot of millennials would be like, if it feels bad, treat it. It's the same mistake. 
which is to say to not be fully alive, to go only according to your desires, only according to your feelings. And if you go according to the, if it feels good, do it, or if it feels bad, get rid of it, then, then you'll finally be happy. Well, guess what? Newsflash, Mother Nature does not care if you're happy. Mother Nature just wants you to pass on your genes, man. And if you want to be happy, that's up to you. That's not Mother Nature's problem. And so you, you have to be, that's the reason that the Buddhists talk about being at war with ourselves. They're not saying that nature's evil. They're just saying that, that we can be more complete if we are the master of ourselves. Right. We have to strive to go beyond what nature dictates for us. And, and we're one of the few animals on this planet that even have that capacity. So why not maximize it? Totally. Totally. That's to be fully alive. St. Irenaeus, this fourth century mystical saint, he said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. And by that, he meant being awake right now. I mean, it's like, don't sleepwalk through your life by trying to make money that you can't spend, by, you know, getting pleasures that don't satisfy. That's drinking seawater. Arthur Schopenhauer, the great 19th century philosopher, said, seawater, that money, like, fame is like seawater. The more the man drinks, the more he wants. And the same is true of money. <laughs> and we've certainly had those characters on this show over the years, and also thinking going into those episodes that they must be the happiest people on the planet. They've achieved a level of success, fame, wealth that's unbelievable. And yet they struggle with these exact same issues. When I think back to my experience growing up Catholic, I think exactly that. I think about how it forced me to go beyond myself and the me thinking and the homilies around we and us and the community and even those outside of the Catholic faith, treating them as neighbors. And I feel in secular life, a lot of that collapses on itself due to capitalism, consumerism, and this need to achieve and constantly strive searching out for success. And your latest book, From Strength to Strength, starts out, I think, in a place that will be a stunning realization for many in our audience. Yeah, it's uh, it was a big realization for me, for sure. You know, we think, and you've had a lot of famous, successful people on your show because you talk about empowerment, human performance on your show. And some of the people who have achieved the most, you find that they're really not satisfied with their lives. You say, what the heck is going on? Well, okay, that's where my book starts you know, on, a, on a plane at night where eight or nine years ago I was doing what I did. I mean, I was a CEO and, and things were going really great for me and I was working myself to death. And I was on a plane at night as like always. I was doing 175 speeches a year. And and it was, I mean, it was it was a hamster wheel. And on this plane at night, I was coming to DC from LA. And there's a guy behind me talking to his wife. I assumed it was his wife. I mean, it was a couple. They were in, the, I could tell by their voices, they were elderly in their 80s. And this guy, I can hear him kind of mumbling to her. And then she answers, Oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. I'm like, whoa. And so I'm kind I don't mean to eavesdrop, but I mean they've got my attention. And then she's, he's mumble, mumble, mumble. And she says, what do you mean that nobody loves you or cares about you and pays attention to you anymore? It's not true. Anyway, she's consoling him. Like, this guy's unconsolable, obviously. The lights go on after we land, and I'm kind of curious. Because I'm a social scientist. I'm a behavioralist, right? So I, I whip around, and I'm thinking it's going to be some guy, you know, some disconsolate, sad sack of a guy. It turns out it's one of the most famous men in the world, Who's, I mean, he's completely uncontroversial. He's a hero for things that he's done over the years, now long past. You know, we all think that somebody who is unbelievably successful by worldly standards would be dining out on that for the rest of their life. And he was telling his wife it would be better if he was dead. So I'm thinking, what's up with that? And it turns out that's ubiquitous. That's every place that's around us. It, we're all trying to be good. We're trying to be better. And, and the people who are going to turn on the art of charm is because they want to be their strivers. I mean, there's nobody who's like a slacker. It's like, I'm going to listen, I'm going to take an hour and listen to the art of charm. You know, it's, that's a, you know, it's a commitment. It's a, an education in yourself. It's a commitment in an a, a investment in yourself. So the people who do that, that's great. And they can do a lot, but that is not going to guarantee their happiness. That's not going to guarantee their satisfaction. That's a different problem. And, and, and I said to myself, look, I'm going to wind up like this guy. I just am. I'm on that path. You know, I am hustling to do as much as I possibly can with my life. I am not satisfied with that life, and I'm not going to find satisfaction. And I'm going to be 85 years old on a plane with my wife, Esther, telling her I wished I were dead. 
because the world will have passed me by at that point, and all of the great things that I think I've done will have turned to straw. That's a fact. So I better get my act together right now. And so I spent the last nine years writing a book on how to crack that problem. And that's that's the book we're talking about right now. And that problem starts a lot earlier than probably many of, many of us in the audience realize. So this idea that on average, the peak in your career occurs around 20 years after your career inception. We've done studies on our audience. Many in our audience are sitting exactly in that bucket of 35 to 50 years old. Why is that so difficult for us to, one, realize, and then, two, really understand and make do with it? Because I'm sitting here, just turned 40, and I'm thinking, oh, wait, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm striving. I'm like trying to reach even higher up the mountain. So it was a tough realization for myself in reading that chapter. Yeah, so there's a, this is based on the, the work of a guy named Dean Keith Simonton, who's a social psychologist at the University of California, Davis. And he's done the, the best work ever done on the trajectory of people's careers who are in creative industries or knowledge workers or information. Basically, everybody listening to us right now, or most people, <clears throat> I mean, there are some people who, who are working with their hands, but most of your audience are going to be people who have office jobs, for example. And most of them you know, have a significant amount of education, for example, because uh, they work with their brains. And that's great. The trouble is that he has found that for the most part, your career peaks about 20 years after the inception of your career, because early on, your career is based on what, what's called fluid intelligence. Now, fluid intelligence is something that that is a term that goes to a, a great psychologist, a British psychologist from the 60s named Raymond Cattell. And he found that there's not one kind of intelligence, there's two. The first is fluid intelligence, which you've got early on in your life in incredible abundance, that's your ability to focus, solve problems, innovate, work hard. And that's what everybody uses to be a star. I mean, that's what, you know, AJ is doing to become the best AJ possible in his 20s and 30s, right? The trouble is it peaks after 20 years and starts to decline. Then what most people don't know and the reason they panic when they actually find they're between 35 and 50 and they find that, you know, they don't, they're not as sharp as they used to be. And almost everybody finds this. Doctors find this. Lawyers find this. Data scientists find this. And they hate it. They hate it. There's good news. The good news is there's another intelligence curve behind the fluid intelligence curve called the crystallized intelligence curve in which you're not coming up with all the original ideas, solving the problems as quickly as you once were, but you actually have a lot of wisdom to take all the facts around you and assemble them into an explanation of what's going on. In other words, you can become an incredible teacher. But you, it, you know, you're not going to be a great teacher in your 20s and 30s. Most people aren't. You, you're, it's much easier to be a great teacher in your 50s and 60s and 70s than it is in your 20s and 30s and even in your 40s because your crystallized intelligence has overtaken your fluid intelligence. You've gone from innovator to instructor. Now, most people don't know this. And so most people just struggle and struggle and struggle. And they feel really bad about the, 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 the great things that happened in their past. And they feel really regretful about the fact that they don't have the edge that they used to have. And they try to hide it, and they get really angry, and they rage against the dying of the light, as Dylan Thomas, the poet, once said. Instead of jumping onto this new curve with both feet and, and having a, a second wave of success that is inherently designed to serve and share with other people. And by the way, AJ, what you're doing right now, you're a teacher, which means that you are actually exploiting your second curve even early in your second curve. So 20 years from now, you'll be better at this than you are right now. Congratulations. Which is the exciting part, because it's what I love doing the most. And as we talk about happiness, being in service of others is one of those pathways that lights up our ability to feel connected and happy. Yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely. No, that's right. And, and as people who are listening to us in their, in their, from their you know, mid-30s to, to early 50s, for example, start thinking about how you can migrate your work toward mentoring, toward managing others, toward building good teams, toward serving other people and teaching other people. That doesn't mean you have to be a college professor like me. It just means that you have to be in some way sharing more, less of a sole proprietor, less of a, a cowboy, and more of a team player. Well, this idea of sharpening skills, learning new skills, and constantly looking to maximize our strengths is a big part of what Johnny and I teach in our programs. And, and I love this, this quote that what got you this far now won't get you there into the future. And that realization for many of our students, even our, our military clients this past week of 
we have to, especially in a world that's the pace of innovation, information is is rapidly growing. We have to realize that those skills that we rest our laurels on, that we found success with, are not going to be what we can find future success with. We need to keep honing that skill set. Can you talk a little bit about where we start now if we've painted this this picture of these two intelligences many in our audience are realizing they want to maximize their crystallized intelligence yeah so to begin with you have to know yourself and recognize that these patterns are normal most people that i talk to who are really insecure about what's going on in their lives they think they're the only one <laughs> and, and this is the, the key thing to keep in mind that this is i mean i i in the book i go through you know medicine law the arts uh, broadcasting, entertainment, everything. I mean, I go through all of these uh, sports. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Obvious, because people are in decline in their 20s. But that's easy. That's just because of, of, of motor skill ability or, or strength, for example. But everybody is going to deal with this. Some people a little bit later, some people a little bit earlier. And if you're lucky enough to have the kind of career that blends fluid and crystallized intelligence, that's great. So if you're a professor, you'd be really involved in your research early on and then really involved in your teaching later and you can have a really good career. But you can't hold on to the wrong part is the bottom line. So number one, it's not you. Number two is you got to have a lot of courage to say, it's okay for me to reinvent myself. I got to reinvent myself. And it's a really cool and fun adventure to reinvent myself. That's been just tectonically important for me. I mean, I, I because of this research, I walked away from my CEO job. 
you know, nobody walks away from these CEO jobs. I was running a think tank in Washington, D.C., in these, these great positions and super fun and at the epicenter of a lot of activity. But I knew that going forward, I needed to do something where I could more easily, more clearly, more in a more defined way, share ideas. And so I went to a college teaching job where I teach, I write, I speak, I talk to big audiences of in the public and also my audiences of my MBA students at Harvard. And and it, it, it's just better placed what I'm going to be able to do over the next 10 to 20 years. So the book goes through the impediments to this, the fear, the, the paranoia, the insecurity that we have. And then it talks about the things that you need to establish to make it possible to, you know, the relationships in your life and your spiritual path, for example. You have to be comfortable with the fact that there are certain kinds of decline, that it's a sexier world to work in fluid intelligence. Everybody wants the star. I mean, you, you, you reward Elon Musk more than you reward your math teacher, but, but, but you have to play to your own strengths because if you don't, you're going to wind up frustrated and like the guy in the plane. Yeah, and that's certainly not necessarily the conversation you want to be having with your wife at that age. Yeah, that's at least that's not the conversation my wife wants to be having with me. (laughs) I think we could all agree on that. Now, this idea leads to another key facet of the book that I want to discuss that I hadn't heard before, the success addiction. Mm. So many of us, and certainly you know this working with MBA students, like, we are through school wired to compare ourselves to others, to rank, to score, to place above. There's this never-ending comparison that's going on through young adulthood to to strive to reach this great success in our career. And it seems to me like it does create a success addiction. Who doesn't want the gold star? Who doesn't want to be in the honors class? Who doesn't want to be accepted to Harvard Business School? What does that say about our, our mental health and happiness? And if we find ourselves in this success addiction state, how do we kick it? Well, so success addiction is like any other addiction. It implicates the dopaminergic pathways in our brains. And dopamine, as everybody knows at this point, because of the wonderful books that have come out by you know by Anna Lemke at Stanford and a, you know, a bunch of really important books, and, and you guys have talked about it on your show, that the dopamine is implicated in all addictive processes and it's the rule it's basically it lights up your reward circuit so you do something you like it you get the little hit you get the little success hit and that gives you a little bit of dopamine that that might be you know a line of coke it might be smoking a cigarette it might be you know playing bingo i don't know but you when you know, when you're really going to get it is when somebody's like you're really great at your job here's a raise Here's a promotion. Here's an acceptance into the Harvard Business School or whatever. I mean, those things give just big, big dopamine hits. And they and they, they say, I'm coming back for more. And so what people do is that they habitually get used to wanting a new hit. I mean, just wanting the, you know, the monkey who wants the banana again and again. Boom, 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 boom. The trouble is you can't keep any satisfaction from that. And because Mother Nature wants you coming back for more. Mother Nature loves that hedonic treadmill, wants you running on it like a, you know, it's like, like an animal, like keep running, man, keep running, man, keep. And, and, and so that the success addiction is not, you know, has no indictment of capitalism. Capitalism's awesome. It can happen in any, any situation where, you know, even at, I mean, the most selfish, self-absorbed people I've ever met are in socialist systems where they, you know, grab all the goodies. And I mean, this is a human problem, not even an economic problem. And so you hit it, you hit the lever, you hit the lever, you hit the lever again and again and again until all you know how to do to the exclusion of your relationships, to the exclusion of your interests, to your the exclusion of your the education and the cultivation of your your moral capacities is all sacrificed on the altar of success because you got to hit the lever again and again. And I think when we talk about money, power, pleasure, fame as these false gods, a lot of it is again taking from others, right? Money, the transaction, we want more of it, whether it's from our boss, whether it's from our company, or if we sell power, we want to have control over others, we want to be able to boss others around. Pleasure, we talked about sex, again, trying to get others to to fall in line, and then fame, the, the chasing of others' attention. So much of this, I see patterns in my own behavior, going through school, going to graduate school, and then getting some success in entrepreneurship. And there are moments where you compare yourself to others and you feel much like we talked about looking at some of these guests and even the the passenger on the plane behind you that you look up to them and you're like, they have it figured out. And a lot of the people we look up to have money, have power, have what seems like endless amounts of fame and, and pleasure in their lives. Why is this 
glorified in society? Why are those false gods what are at the forefront? And if they're not necessarily the ones that lead to happiness, what should we be pursuing? Yeah, so that the, the reason that we idolize the people who are following the idols, as it were, is because we just don't really know another way. You know, people are pretty simple creatures. Uh, there are people, of course, who do. If you go to the Dalai Lama, he's not going to say, you know, work a 16-hour day. He's going to say, call your mother. He's going to say, you know, spend time in meditation. He's going to tell you these things that actually do bring rewards. I mean, there's the the four idols, money, power, pleasure, and fame. And then there are the four uh, things that really do bring happiness, which are faith, family, friends, and and sanctified work in the service of others, where you really earn your success. And and so we we go for the easy lure because our brain keeps lying to us. Our brain keeps tricking us. It's this gaudy plumage of the, you know that says you know over here I'm a you know big and beautiful the whole thing, but it turns out that you're just you know a bird that's got that tail. And and you know your brain is 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 trained to do that. And we just haven't gotten over that. A few people do, you know, I'm hoping that we could, and this is every time, by the way, when there's a religious revival, a whole lot of people are like, I'm not happy. I don't like it. The world's lying to me. This is not enough. And then a whole lot of people try to become enlightened. And there's a non-trivial number of people who are enlightened, but the, the lumpen masses of people are just running on their treadmills again and again and again, because their brains are lying to them and they're believing the lies. Well, this brings up an interesting topic, or at least Sidebar, which you worked in D.C., you were working in, in a think tank. I would imagine then because of that in your career, you know and friends with quite a lot of politicians. They know this science as well as anybody else. We, It's not like this is secret. It's not like you've cracked a code that, that, that has come out of uh, sideways. So we know what makes us happy. We know what makes a strong society. We know what makes us excited to take on the day. So why is the messaging that we're getting just so all over the map? And I'm, I'm sure there's many different answers to this, but I would like to hear your take on it after uh, studying this, but also working in that atmosphere. Well, part of it is that the messages that we get to do the wrong thing are just a lot easier to sell because they're very short term and they're intuitively, they seem right. I mean, it's look, it's, it's, what do you see a billboard for? Cheetos and Pepsi. You know, that stuff is terrible for you and it'll make you feel horrible. It'll, it'll taste really good in the moment, but it'll be really bad for your health. And if you binge on it, and that's all that I see, it's a big drink of Pepsi there. So the, uh, <laughs> like, speaking of which, the bubbly. Mm, Bubbly. <laughs> that's right. Soda break. There you go. There's bubbly. Yeah, that's like <laughs> that. You know, th- this is an easier thing to sell. I mean, the short termism is easier to sell. It's it, it's more. It sounds intuitively correct, but it's not. You don't see a big billboard saying, "Eat un you know unflavored non fat Greek yogurt with with protein powder in it," which is my habitual dessert because I'm a freak, right? But and so politicians, they're people too, and they're selling fear instead of love. They're selling short-termism instead of something that's more nutritious because people hit that bait a lot more frequently. We have access to the to the best in in messaging in the world. We have access to the best marketers in in the world. We don't need to throw up billboards that say "eat this terrible tasting thing" because it's good for you. We can massage that message really well and fire people up about a more healthier lifestyle, which we all know everybody needs right now in the middle of this pandemic. Right. No, that's absolutely true. But but again, your brain lies and your brain says and your your executive function is inhibited by the desires that you have, your ancient desires that you have. You know, your 500,000 years ago, if there was something sweet, something that was highly glycemic, you'd go to the top of a tree and risk your life to get it because it would be, you know, fast calories. Well, we're maladapted to that at this particular point in our lives. And so the result of that now is that that, that Doritos billboard is the, the equivalent of the banana at the very top of the tree. And, that, and we're still cavemen. We have not evolved to the point where we actually desire the stuff that's good for us. Well, even if we take that to its logical conclusion, that billboard for Doritos, well, Doritos are far cheaper than the healthier foods. (laughs) When you load things up with chemicals, when you artificially sweeten and artificially load up with fat that isn't found in that combination in nature, 
Well, it's the easy way to money. We look at politics, it's the easy way to power. To stay in power is to demonize the other side. That's the easiest way to get reelected. Again, that false god. When you talked about the four things that we should be chasing, the one that Johnny and I have started to discuss and we're seeing more and more in our clients is work and the lack of meaning found in work. We've talked about this great resignation, and you can go into the data of who's actually quitting their jobs. But even outside of that, I mean, some of my coaching clients now that I'm talking to are asking me questions of how do I find my purpose? How do I find meaningful work? I don't like this current state of work where I'm no longer in an office. I don't feel connected. There's no community. My coworkers and I barely interact. I'm forced to work from Zoom, feeling quite isolated. And then when I think about what I'm doing, well, I'm helping someone else in a leadership role worship the unhealthy God of money, (laughs) of power, of fame. I'm not actually doing anything meaningful. How do we find what would be meaningful work for ourselves for those who are in our career not happy with our current prospects? Yeah. And the same question is, how can we actually help create that for people who work for us? So a lot of people who are listening to us right now have employees and they don't want everybody to quit. And even if they don't quit, they don't want them to be miserable because they're ethical, decent human beings. There's two characteristics to a job that will make it a source of happiness. They have, they're not money. They're not They're not position, they're not authority, they're not power. No, no. They're earned success and service to others. Those that, I mean, I don't care if you're a bus driver or a podcaster or a Harvard professor or whatever you happen to do, you will be unhappy with your job if you don't feel like you're earning your success, if if your accomplishments are not rewarded, if you're not recognized for things that you're doing well, if your skills don't meet your passions, if you're not creating value with your work. That's earned success. The opposite is what, what psychologists call learned helplessness. Where, you know, you don't get a reward for what you do, but you also don't get a penalty when things don't go right. Your skills aren't meeting your passions, so you kind of give up. You learn helplessness. And there's a lot of experiments with people and with animals, and, you know, there's a lot of research on this. So earned success is number one. And number two is the belief that you're making life better for somebody else. That's what creates true meaning. And then the magic is when you have earned success and service to others in the context of a community, Now, here's the key thing. I mean, people are like, why is there such a great resignation going on? Well, because maybe half of your compensation is your money. The other part is is these intangible rewards. I mean, you need the money to pay your rent. I got it. But these intangible rewards of earning your success and serving other people, but most importantly, doing it with your friends, this is a big deal. These companies are like, yeah, I can save tons of money by making everybody really productive by being remote forever. And people are like, yeah, that's fine with me. Because once again, your, your, your executive center of your brain is inhibited by loneliness. It's inhibited by being all by yourself, which is not natural. And so you make the wrong choice. Say, yeah, I'll stay home forever because working in my pajamas. Awesome. And, and then the result of it is I can't you figure out why you're, you feel empty with your job. You don't like your job. That's because you're a lonely person and you're developing signs of anxiety and depression which is being foisted upon you by the fact that you're, you continue to be, you know, with this paranoid society where somebody might get the coronavirus, so nobody gets to see each other ever, which is insanity. It's a mental health crisis that's washing across the country because of the, the paranoia that we all, this collective insanity that we all have about this whole situation. And then the economists are scratching their heads. How come everybody's quitting their jobs? Well, how could everybody not be quitting their jobs under these circumstances? Well, I'm curious, especially because we have a number of clients over the years, and, and one of my coaching clients right now, whose answer to this is like, oh, I'll just, I'll go get an MBA. I'll go get more school and I'll, I'll figure out what I want to do there. I'll find my purpose. And, you know, on the rare occasion where we do have an MBA professor who has those students in their class who are thinking, oh, if I just go back to school, if I just get that other degree, that other notch on my belt, then I'll find my purpose and, and I'll find that meaningful work. Yeah. No, you won't. No, you won't. No, you won't. I mean, good, good. Get an MBA. But that's not the reason. That that's not the reason. It's because there's some there's something that you feel like you can contribute um, by having more education, and, or there's a particular credential that you need to be in a position where you can contribute more. But it, you know, for people who are listening to us who are, have this emptiness, this deep emptiness in the wake of the coronavirus epidemic, there's a lot of neurobiology that explains this. There's that's that's lo- a large part of the emptiness comes from an oxytocin deficit. 
Oxytocin is a neuropeptide that functions as a hormone that we actually get. It's intensely pleasurable. It's produced by the human brain in response to eye contact and touch. And people aren't getting enough of it. And so they're turning to horrible substitutes, the Doritos of social life, a.k.a. Instagram. You know, that are, that are, it's just junk food for the soul. And so they're filling up on this junk food and getting actually lonelier and lonelier as the hours pass. And they say, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I have this, the hole in my soul. What do I do? I don't know. Maybe I, you know, I'll quit. Maybe I'll, I'll get a new job. Tell you what, move to a place that's free enough that you can, that notwithstanding the public health issues around you where people are permitted to see each other and start a meditation or prayer practice and get your interior life in order. That's actually the order of business for people if they want to be happier starting today in the wake of this horrible pandemic. What I find so fascinating about the neurobiology that you talk about and this, this craving for oxytocin is the same thing is, is sort of happening. So we have this loneliness em- epidemic, and unfortunately, social media is that empty calorie to replace what we're lacking. And then we go on social media, and if you look at the viral videos, the the people of influence who have the most attention or fame, they're typically the ones who look the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most in a pleasured state. So even when we are in a a forced loneliness where we're separated from one another, we then reach for social media and social media just continues to lead us right off the map of happiness towards money, fame, pleasure, power. And it's just continually reinforcing this idea. And then we end up in a situation where we're feeling disconnected. Many listening to the show are coming here to build better relationships, to they understand the science behind why, but they don't often understand how to. And much of what I experienced in in UPRA, in education, in college, and in graduate school was a very much in competition with others go it alone mindset and no real emphasis on building the community that you talk about that's so helpful for our mental health, building the connections that lead to happiness on the Harvard study. And it's just such a head scratcher for Johnny and I around, again, we know what works. We know we have the science and the data. We should be shouting it from the rooftops and we should be trying to instill these values at a young enough age to have a real impact on each other's lives to get to that state of happiness. Yeah, I know. And it's, you know, this is the same head scratcher, by the way, if you were, you were talking to Judson Brewer a couple of shows back and who's phenomenal. And he's, he's, you know, he's he's an expert in addiction and, you know, an an addict to a substance, you know, a heroin addict or a methamphetamine addict or somebody will, they think they, they know perfectly that they need to stop using heroin or, or meth to get better. But in the meantime, what will make me feel better? More meth. Right. I mean, that's, that's the problem. And so if, you know, I, every, there's nobody who's listening to us right now who doesn't think it's like, you know, what makes me really happy? Twitter. No. I mean, that's, these are words that have never been uttered. Right. And yet I betcha some people are listening to us right now. And in the right hand, they've got their phone and they're scroll, they're doom scrolling their Twitter feed. And the reason is because their brain is lighting up like a Christmas tree and saying, feed me dopamine, feed me dopamine. We do the wrong thing all the time because we're in, there's, a, there's an almost sinister tendency to get into these loops, these neurochemical loops and, and that breaking people out of that is the ultimate kind of self-mastery is you know, being able to, to, to get out of these particular loops hard to do. Because, you know, it's easy to be addicted. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to not be addicted. That's the reason that a guy like Judson Brewer is a famous, a famous researcher. Well, I know Johnny and I would love your perspective on this. It's something that we've been grappling with internally as we've now had numerous coders through our program and this idea of Web 3.0 and the metaverse and moving everything into a completely digital space. And you can see based, if you're watching the YouTube video, based on Johnny's reaction, how he feels about it and our concern around this augmented reality, moving to the metaverse, moving everyone into a digital space, which seems to be farther and farther away from faith, family, friends, and meaningful work. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's interesting thing. It's just like, it's, it's, it's insane. You know, it's, it's this old joke, you know, what's the first prize in a pie eating contest? The answer is pie. pie. So, man, I hope you like pie. That's all I can say is, and, and, you know, all these people are in these, it's like these people are in these pie eating contests and they don't like pie and they're wondering why life is so crummy. 
under the circumstances. And so it's like, I don't like how I feel when I don't have any real relationships. I don't like how I feel when I don't have real life love. So what am I going to do? I'm going to put on these goggles and then get into a universe that axiomatically excerpts all human life from it. It's the pie eating contest of, of you know, the, the, the internet loop that's surrounding us. So the key thing is more real life, more human connection. And if you want something that's more metaphysical from that, that's more transcendental from that, develop your faith life, develop your spiritual life. If you want anything that excerpts from the day-to-day interaction with the humans, make it your meditation practice. That's all I can say. And that's the secret. The trouble is it's a lot easier to eat the Doritos. Well, during the the pandemic, I mean, everybody had a at least should have had an opportunity to be introspective, reflect on what is important. And for myself, for my hierarchical importance is going to be the the company first due to affords me everything else that I have. But number two is, is music. And I even told AJ when I, I had, I had done a lot of thinking about music and, and writing about why it means so much to me. And I think at this point I've fallen in love. I love music more now than I ever have. And it's always been a large driver in my life. As you can see behind me. And, and I know that it's also in your background as, as well. Uh, The third on my hierarchical structure is, is, is family and friends, but I was curious to know where music plays in this happiness quotient. And, and where your relationship is with it now, because your relationship with music was a little bit more strenuous than mine as you were classically trained in, in, in performing arts. Right, that's right. So I started off as a violin at four, piano at five, and then French horn at eight. And that's what stuck. And so I did that and I wound up uh, flunking out of college, you know, leaving college. You know, it was a mutual decision with me in the college, let's put it that way. After, my, after about 10 months in college, I went pro as a classical musician. So I played chamber music all over the road in the United States for six years. Then I played a bunch of seasons in the Barcelona Symphony where I actually, I actually went there uh, chasing a girl who didn't speak English and, um, and I didn't speak any Spanish. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that the music career didn't last, but we just had our 30th wedding anniversary and we have three adult kids. So all's well, it is well, man, love, 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 love is happiness, you know, full stop. But anyway, music is really what most animates my soul. More than anything else, it's the it's the lingua franca of what moves me. I understand music more than I understand social science or mathematics or economics or anything that we're doing because I've done this. I learned how to read music before I learned how to read. It's kind of who I am as a person. I don't do it for a living now because it wasn't that fun to do for a living. You know, I didn't do it for the right reasons, but it's still with me all the time. Now, there's some interesting philosophy and sort of metaphysics around this as well that you're probably aware of. So. Most of the 19th century, early 20th century philosophers, uh, they said one of the things that they, one of the things that they had in common is that we can't actually perceive reality. Earlier philosophy said that there's a an objective reality of the things that we see, and then what happened in the late 19th century, early 20th century is that they philosophers started to question this, and they said, no, 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 there's no objective reality. There's only subjective reality. Reality exists when we perceive something, and so each one of us is creating the essence of the things around us. Now that's that's heavy, man. I mean, it's like people's brains are popping while I'm saying that right now. <laughs> but that's what all of like Nietzsche and Sartre and all these guys what they had in common. Okay, well, Arthur Schopenhauer, I've mentioned it before already in this conversation. He's my favorite guy. He believed that, in fact, there was an objective reality. There was. We just can't see it except in strange moments. Strange moments. And and, and he said, and so he looked for those moments of experience where we could get true reality. He says, those are the moments when you can't say why, but tears come to your eyes. So I think about that. Now, what are those moments for me? There's three things. There's three circumstances. I'm not a very emotional person. There are three times when my emotions get the better of me, when I'm thinking about my children, when I'm thinking about my faith, and when I'm listening to music. That's it. Those are the three things. There's something transcendental about what's happening with my perception when I'm listening to music. And, and Schopenhauer honestly believed that it was only with music that you could get those moments of true objective clarity, where you could truly understand the nature of reality is when you were listening to music. Isn't that interesting? I love it. And I think music is that beautiful through line 
through much of the, if you want to call them the real gods we should be worshiping. So I think of faith, I think of all modern major religions having a basis of music running through them to spread the message, to unite people, to bring them together. I also think some of my fondest memories are music moments shared with my dad. And I know Johnny shared a few on the show. And the introduction of music into the family and and thinking about listening to music together and, and creating memories around that music. And then friends as well. And many of my friends sharing my musical inclinations and, and Johnny the same. And what so excites me about all of this is the rise of the creator economy, because I truly feel that the act of creation, what we're doing here, creating a podcast that could help others, the act of creation has created community in our lives. We've made friends through it. And it's certainly been an opportunity to work and develop out these skills. And I encourage anyone, no matter where they are in their career, if they are feeling that emptiness, to create something, whether that be music, whether that be a podcast or a video or an article, but just the simple fact of taking those thoughts and feelings in your body and memorializing them in some way and sharing them with others, I think is just such a powerful way to tap in to those areas of life that lead to real happiness. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And and some people think that they're not very creative, which is actually wrong. They're just not traditionally creative. Thinking about how you can do something that is new or that combines old ideas in new ways. Actually, this gets back to the earlier part of our conversation of fluid and crystallized intelligence. So the, the way for older people to be happy is to find ways that combining ideas, concepts, uh, knowledge in new ways such that it can become something generative for other people. That's an inherently creative thing to do. And that's what older people are especially good at. That's what people who are over 60 are best at. That's why in college, your best professors were over 65 and 70, because they had this, you know, huge amount of crystallized intelligence. And, you know, one time when I was talking to a real junior colleague, someone who had just come in out of graduate school and said, what's the secret to getting great teaching evaluations? It's like, wait 30 years. That's the secret. (laughs) (laughs) And do a good job. (laughs) I I believe that wholeheartedly. And I, I feel in reading this book, excited. That that opening chapter was a, a bucket of cold water at first from that perspective. I got to get your attention. <laughs> yeah. But by coming out the other end of the book, it, it is exciting to realize how science has a very distinct role in our lives. And you can either ignore it, you could blame it, you could fight it, or you could use this great information and harness it to find happiness later in your career, to find that purpose, that meaning in your life. Yep. So if you do it right, everybody, here's, here's the promise of the book. If you take this seriously, there is no reason that you shouldn't be significantly happier at 75 than you are at any other point in your life. There's no reason that you can't, that can't be the case. Now there are barriers to it. You know, there's physical health, by the way, is not one of the barriers to it. Mental health can be a problem. Substance abuse can be a big problem. But if you, if your happiness hygiene is on point, if you understand the four idols and you understand the four blessings, if you understand how to how to build the relationships in your spiritual path, but most importantly, you can jump onto that second curve. Man, the world is your oyster. You're going to be rocking and rolling. You're going to be telling your wife behind me on the plane, I tell you, I'm old, but I've never been happier. <laughs> That's the goal. I want that conversation for our audience. We love asking every guest who joins us what their X factor is, what makes them unique and extraordinary. What do you think your X factor is, Arthur? I believe that I have been, I've been given the gift of incredible curiosity. And I just can't, I can't satiate my curiosity. And, you know, there are a lot of people who can talk. There are a lot of people who can write. There are a lot of people who can teach. There are a lot of people who have tons of IQ points on me. But the X factor for me is that I just can't get the machine off in trying to learn new things. And and the curiosity that I have, the intense pleasure, the unbelievable neurochemistry, the, the, the 4th of July explosion in my brain when I learn new and cool stuff. By the way, this is the reason I like to listen to The Art of Charm, because it gives me this neurochemical, you know, 4th of July and, and But for me, to be able to turn that by working my career in the right way into a way that I can actually serve others, to lift other people up, is that's how curiosity becomes my X factor. Well, thank you for that curiosity. We love your work at The Atlantic and your books. Where can our audience find out more about you, Arthur? 
Thanks. Arthurbrooks.com, which is where, you know, you get kind of a repository of columns and books, et cetera, et cetera. And people want to read the new book and be happier at 75, From Strength to Strength, Finding Happiness, Success, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Awesome. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for having me today. Thank you for joining us. What a great conversation. Thank you. That was a very fun episode. I could talk to Arthur for hours. His book was fantastic. And AJ, I, I had so many notes prepared for this show that I, I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know if we'd ever get finished with it. Well, what I love about Arthur is not only his experience on all these topics, but really how he tackles this idea of a career trajectory and how we can make the most of finding purpose and meaning, which is something that we talk about a lot here on the show. And I definitely learned just how early that second half of your career starts. Yes. This week's shout out goes to our X Factor member, Lewis, who has used his communication skills that he has learned in the X Factor to land his first client for his private accounting business. Way to go, Lewis. I will tell you, AJ and I have said this a million times, your first client is the hardest. So congratulations. We look forward to hearing more great stories from you and all of our members of the X Factor Accelerator. You might be wondering, is this it? Is this all there is? Is this the rest of my life? If you have asked yourself that question, then you've gotten uncomfortable with being comfortable. You've come to the conclusion that you want more out of life. You're not done. And if that's the case, join us and hundreds of other people like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging up their confidence and growing an incredible network in the X Factor Accelerator. The X Factor Accelerator is where high achieving, like-minded people just like you meet, strategize, and unlock their hidden X Factor to make the most out of life's opportunities and unlock those doors keeping you from success. You'll start every month with an intense goal-setting strategy session, weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice rapport building, supercharge your charisma through powerful communication, and the charm to attract the right people into your life. Are you ready to win at Love, Work, and Life in 2022? Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with The Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. Now, this show is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery, and we hope each and every one of you go out there and have an epic week.